0: Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. Christmas with them. We got to go have our own Christmas at our house. We got to be a part of our church's Christmas plays and activities. It was always so much fun. I loved it. And what's not to love about the Christmas season, right? The candy, the cookies, the food, the snow, the lights, the decorations, the stories, and especially the music, right? The music at Christmas time always moves me. Even though I've heard the same songs year after year. Why? Because in our songs we place important truths. We speak of the story of Christmas. We proclaim the name of Jesus. And that is a beautiful thing. As I got to my college years though, I kind of became a little cynical about Christmas. A little belligerent in some of my uh, tendencies. And I sometimes still have to war against those around Christmas time, because I tend to pick apart songs, especially ones that have bad theological points or misleading statements, the ones sometimes that are just outright not true. One of them I began to dislike while I was in college was Away in a Manger. I didn't like that song. And I'm sure you all know the song well, it's kind of a classic of Christmas time. And it is a beautiful song, but I didn't like it in college because of the line, The little Lord Jesus, no crying, he makes. The song seemed to be expressing in my mind that Jesus wasn't fully human, that he was some type of magical baby that wasn't fully man, and didn't cry or poop or fall down and skin his knee or anything else that we as human beings do. Yet the older that I get, the more I realize I don't think that was the writer's intent with the song to belittle the humanity of Jesus with that line. In fact, as I look at the song more and more, I think it expresses truly the idea of the humble coming of Christ into human form very well. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The incarnation doesn't take place in a throne room. It doesn't take place in a palace. It doesn't take place in a kingdom that is befitting his station. No, it takes place in a very lowly position. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. For those of you who grew up in church, you know this story well. You can probably almost quote it from memory, especially if you've watched uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I'm sure you know it well. (coughs) Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, This is the key passage that A Way in a Manger is based on. Let the meaning marinate for just a minute. Let those words settle into your gray matter for a moment. Jesus, God the Son, the second divine person of the one triune God is born. For the sake of clarity, I have to remind you, born doesn't mean created, Jesus was not created, he is eternal, and by him all things were created. I cannot stress to you enough the importance of this, because a great many heresies and cults begin with the idea that Jesus was created. No, Jesus is creator, he is not created. He has no beginning, he has no end. Is it sufficiently clear? Now think about what we've just seen in This passage, our eternal God, our creator, our everlasting King, the maker of innumerable stars and planets and galaxies, author of life, who knits together human beings in the womb, whose breath gives man his soul, this God chooses to come into the world that he created, not with fanfare and parades and parties, but by being birthed. Has that thought sufficiently settled into your mind? Our God chooses to incarnate, to literally take on human form, to be wrapped in flesh. Now to you and me, that's normal. That's how we have to be born. That's the natural way we go about our existence. We are conceived, we grow, and we're birthed, and then we continue to grow. But we're dealing with God here. God chooses to be born. And, folks, that's not pretty. All of our Christmas songs, all of the old movies, the kids' coloring books, they all show Mary so pretty and happy and clean and awake, holding the awake and clean and happy baby Jesus. But that's not the way birth happens. I always get flashbacks when I think about the incarnation of when I was in high school as part of health class. We were required to watch a live birth video. And without going into too many details, let's just say it wasn't pretty. It was messy. And I have zero reason to believe that Jesus' birth wasn't messy. It was like our births. Messy and undignified and more than a little frightening for everyone involved. And this is how God chooses to come into the world. And not just by being born. Notice the place of his birth. Some type of barn or cave, stable or hut, where animals are kept. And we know this because the word manger. And we depict the manger so pretty, made out of wood, up off the ground, but it's not a pretty word, it's not a pretty thing. It's definitely not something you want to put a baby in. It is a feeding trough. A manger is a place where hay or slop or whatever the animals were being fed is placed. It's not a pretty decoration. It's not a place of nobility or honor. It's not what we typically depict in our nativity scenes. It is definitely not a place worthy of the eternal king. Yet Jesus comes into the world he created humbly, lowly, being laid in a feeding trough. Our creator condescends. He lowers himself. Not only to our level, but he is born at the lowest level, as the least. No crib for our king, no bed for this baby, even though his being and nature is divine, even though he is God. And we read over this so very quickly in the story each year as though this is normal. We take it for granted, the fact that the maker is in a manger where animals like to munch. We sing our songs forgetting the powerful meaning behind it that God comes into the world he creates, not with millions kneeling before him as they rightfully should, presenting him with gifts. Not in a castle, not in a... Fortress of the best make and model that could be found, but in the lowest, dirtiest, poorest conditions that are most certainly unbefitting any king, let alone his royal majesty. God condescends. Do you understand that word? We've gotten so sloppy in America with how we speak and use words. Many times we use them without fully understanding what they mean. I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard someone use the word word. Uh, and I quote Enigo Montoya from uh, The Princess Bride saying, uh, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> I love that movie. The word literally. Don't you hate it when people misuse that? I hate when I hear people say, I'm literally going to jump off a cliff. Mm-hmm. It seems like a bad idea, but okay. Do you know what condescend means? What it actually means? The real definition of it it is, not like we've turned literally into. It means to yield deferentially, to lower oneself. But that doesn't quite fully capture the meaning of it, the picture that the word is meant to convey. If you look at the original roots of that word, the meaning that's intended to be conveyed is this sinking willingly to the same level to equal terms with that of one who is inferior. So when I say God condescends, understand in that full sense of the word that God intentionally allows himself to condescend, to sink, to be lowered to our level. He loses nothing of his divinity. Don't misunderstand. Nothing of his godhood is lost. But he adds to it the fullness of what it means to be man. And he comes into this existence lowly. Lowering himself to the worst possible place to be born in my mind. When I think of condescension, I often get memories of what it was like during the holidays when we would go to Grandma and Grandpa Wade's house and we would have a family meal. There were so many of us gathered together that there was the adult table and then there was the kid table. And the kid table was pushed right up against the organ. And I remember we would always compete for who would have to sit on the organ's bench rather than in a nice chair. And I remember occasionally, as we would be sitting at the kid table, longingly looking at the adult table, I don't know why, I don't know why we thought it was so important, but we did as kids. As we would longingly look at the adult table, occasionally, one of the fun uncles, would condescend to our level. He would come from the adult table with all of its fun and splendor and majesty and lower himself to the kids' table. I know that seems like that's a silly example. It's a very basic, normal condescension. But you see the idea of coming to a place that is beneath. This is what God does. He condescends. He comes into his creation. He lowers himself. And we pass over this like it's nothing each year. My friends, as Christians, this should wreck us every time we think about it. Why? Because this being, this eternal God who condescends, who is born in blood and hay and mud and is laid in a feeding trough for animals, even though he is the eternal creator, he deserves so much better. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is almighty God. He is the one whom angels sing about, who strange and wonderful heavenly creatures beyond our limited comprehension sing about eternally, crying out the words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the thrice holy God who sits on a throne that John tries to describe in his revelation of Jesus Christ when he says that he saw him. And he saw his throne. He said, around that throne... There are 24 smaller thrones where 24 elders are seated, and it is encircled by a rainbow that shines like an emerald, and from God's throne comes lightning and rumblings of thunder. And in front of the throne is what looks like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the middle of the throne, whenever the heavenly creatures sing out that God is holy, 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 the elders throw themselves down towards that throne worshiping the one who sits there, praising God, declaring forever and ever, Amen, the following statement, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. This eternal God, who by his power not only creates the universe, but holds it together and sustains it. He comes into flesh. He lowers himself to the level of us. He condescends willingly. Why? Because of his great love. John, the revelator who sees the vision of God's throne, also tells us perhaps the most well-known most quoted verse of scripture ever. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The story of Christmas is a story of love so powerful that God would lower himself to our level and here's the part where it really should wreck us why does he come why does he condescend so that he can die you ever wonder why why does Jesus become a man at all it's so he can die but you didn't get didn't think you'd be getting an Easter story this close to Christmas did you But Christmas and Easter are intertwined. They go hand in hand. It is the whole reason that Jesus comes, that he condescends, that he takes on flesh becoming fully man. He does this so that he could be the sacrifice for our sin. And it should rend our hearts when we hear the song, Away in a Manger. This Christmas, you'll hear the song more than once, I promise you. And each time I want you to remember that the one true God, the eternal King, creator of all, that He loves you enough that He willingly lowered Himself. He came into flesh so that He could die as the payment once and for all, for sin. And that is my challenge to you as Christians this Christmas season. Don't let the songs become mundane. Don't let the truths behind the words become something that we take for granted. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his love endures forever. For Christians this should cause the response of pouring out glory and thanksgiving to God. a song that I sang during the offering, it's one of my favorite songs because it is solely focused around what we as Christians should be doing: giving all glory. And honor and praise to Christ. There's nothing in there about our feelings, nothing in there about our understanding, our day to day, nothing in there about us really at all. It's all about Jesus. This is our response to Christmas. All glory be to Christ. For those of you that aren't a Christian, this is my challenge to you. The message of Christmas demands a response. And there are two responses to receive from Christ forgiveness, to repent, to believe, to trust Him, and to obey Him. Or. To suppress the truth. Those are the only two options. There is no middle ground. The question is what will you do? This morning we're going to have a time of invitation. And during this time of invitation. If you need to make a response to the message of Christ. This is the time to believe in Jesus, to trust him, to repent of your sin. And when you do that, we will baptize you. I love baptism because it is the story of Easter summed up in a symbol. It is why Christmas happens And you have an opportunity to participate in that. If you need to make a decision, don't wait. I you come forward as we stand and sing. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at WCC jb.org or come visit us at 1405 persimmon ridge road in jonesboro tennessee check our website and facebook page for service times we hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon